Chapter 7, Part 2 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Continued. The following memorandum by General McClellan was found lying among his manuscript at this point. General Staff Corps. Abolish the Adjutant General and Inspector General's Departments, and merge their functions in those of the General Staff Corps. Make the Chief of the General Staff a Major General, and let the Corps be composed somewhat as follows, viz. 1. The Major General. 2. One Brigadier General to perform the present duties of Adjutant General. 1. Brigadier General to perform the present duties of Inspector General, etc. 8. One Colonel Assistant to the Chief. One colonel in charge of the Department of Military Inspection, Maps, Statistics, etc. Two colonels, inspection duty. Two colonels, assistant adjutant generals. Two colonels, aides de camp. Eleven. One lieutenant colonel, assistant to chief. One lieutenant colonel, military statistics. Two lieutenant colonels, inspection duty. Four lieutenant colonels, assistant adjutant generals. Three lieutenant colonels, aides de camp. Nineteen. Four Majors, Inspection Duty, Eight Majors, Assistant Adjutant Generals, One Major, Statistics, Six Majors, Aides de Camp. 30. Four Captains, Assistant Chief, Four Captains, Military Statistics, Eight Captains, Military Inspection, Eight Captains, Assistant Adjutant Generals, Six Aides, General Duty. The affairs of the Adjutant General's Department, while I commanded the Army of the Potomac, were conducted by Brigadier General S. Williams, assisted by Lieutenant Colonel James A. Hardy, aide-de-camp. Their management of the Department during the organization of the Army in the fall and winter of 1861 and during its subsequent operations in the field was excellent. They were, during the entire period, assisted by Captain Richard B. Irwin, aide-de-camp, and during the organization of the Army by the following named officers, Captains Joseph Kirkland, Arthur McClellan, M.T. McMahon, William P. Mason, and William F. Biddle, aides-de-camp. My personal staff, when we embarked for the peninsula, consisted of Colonel Thomas M. Key, additional aide-de-camp, Colonel E. H. Wright, additional aide-de-camp and Major 6th U.S. Cavalry, Colonel T. T. Gant, additional aide-de-camp, Colonel J.J. Astor, Jr., volunteer aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Colonel A.V. Colburn, additional aide-de-camp and Captain Adjutant General's Department, Lieutenant Colonel N.B. Schweitzer, additional aide-de-camp and Captain 1st U.S. Cavalry, Lieutenant Colonel Edward M.C.K. Hudson, additional aide-de-camp and Captain 14th U.S. Infantry, Lieutenant Colonel Paul von Radowitz, additional aide-de-camp, Major H. Von Hammerstein, additional aide-de-camp. Major W. W. Russell, U.S. Marine Corps. Major F. Lecompte, of the Swiss Army, volunteer aide-de-camp. Captains Joseph Kirkland, Arthur McClellan, L. P. Dorlins, R. Dorlins, M. T. McMahon, William P. Mason, Jr., William F. Biddle, and E. A. Raymond, additional aides-de-camp. Of these officers... Colonel Gant performed the duty of Judge Advocate General. Major Lecompte was a spectator. Captains Kirkland, McClellan, McMahon, Mason, and Biddle were on duty in the Adjutant General's office. Captain Raymond with the Chief of Staff. 
Captain McMahon was assigned to the personal staff of Brigadier General Franklin, and Captains Kirkland and Mason to that of Brigadier General F.J. Porter during the siege of Yorktown. They remained subsequently with those general officers. Major Lecompte left the army during the siege of Yorktown. Colonels Gant and Astor, Major Russell, Captains L.P. Dorlins, R. Dorlins, and Raymond at the close of the Peninsular Campaign. To this number I am tempted to add the Prince de Joinville, who constantly accompanied me through the trying campaign of the Peninsula, and frequently rendered important services. Soon after we reached the Chickahominy, I took as one of my aides Lieutenant G. A. Custer, 5th U.S. Cavalry, as a reward for an act of daring gallantry. This was the beginning of the distinguished career of one of the most gallant soldiers of the army and an admirable cavalry leader. Before the termination of the Peninsular Campaigns, Captains W.S. Abert and Charles R. Lowell of the 6th U.S. Cavalry joined my staff as aides-de-camp and remained with me until I was relieved from the command of the Army of the Potomac. All of these officers served me with great gallantry and devotion. They were ever ready to execute any service, no matter how dangerous, difficult, or fatiguing. The duties of the Inspector General's Department, during the whole period of my command of the Army of the Potomac, were performed by Colonel D.B. Sackett, assisted by Majors N.H. Davis and Roger Jones, of the Inspector General's Corps. The value of the services rendered by these officers merits all the commendation that I can bestow. No duty was ever slighted by them and no labor too great for them. Their reports were always full, satisfactory, and thoroughly to be relied upon. Nor did they confine themselves to the mere routine work of their duties, but on the field of battle rendered most valuable services as aides de camp under heavy fire. When I assumed command of the Division of the Potomac, I found Major J.G. Bernard, U.S. Engineers, subsequently Brigadier General of Volunteers, occupying the position of Chief Engineer of McDowell's command. I continued him in the same office, and at once gave the necessary instructions for the completion of the defenses of the Capitol and for the entire reorganization of the department. Under his direction, the entire system of defenses was carried into execution. This was completed before the Army departed for Fort Monroe, and is a sufficient evidence of the skill of the engineers and the diligent labor of the troops. The engineer department presented the following organization when the Army moved for the peninsula. Brigadier General J.G. Bernard, Chief Engineer. First Lieutenant H.C. Abbott, Topographical Engineers, Aide de Camp. Brigade Volunteer Engineers, Brigadier General Woodbury Commanding. 15th New York Volunteers, Colonel McLeod Murphy, 50th New York Volunteers, Colonel C.B. Stewart, Battalion, 3 Companies, U.S. Engineers, Captain J.C. Duane Commanding, Companies respectively commanded by 1st Lieutenants C.B. Reese, C.E. Cross, and O.E. Babcock, U.S. Engineers. The Chief Engineer was ably assisted in his duties by Lieutenant Colonel B.S. Alexander and 1st Lieutenants C.R. Comstock, M.D. McAllister, and Merrill, U.S. Engineers. Captain C.S. Stewart and 2nd Lieutenant F.U. Farquhar, U.S. Engineers, joined after the Army arrived at Fort Monroe. The necessary bridge equipage for the operations of a large army had been collected, consisting of bateaux, with the anchors and flooring material, French model, trestles and engineer's tools, 
with the necessary wagons for their transportation. The small number of officers of this corps available rendered it impracticable to detail engineers permanently at the headquarters of corps and divisions. The companies of regular engineers never had their proper number of officers, and it was necessary, as a rule, to follow the principle of detailing engineer officers temporarily whenever their services were required. Constantly during the construction of the defenses of Washington, and during the subsequent campaigns, we suffered great inconvenience and delay from the want of a sufficient number of officers of engineers. To the Corps of Topographical Engineers was instructed the collection of topographical information and the preparation of campaign maps. Until a short time previous to the Department of the Army for Fort Monroe, Lieutenant Colonel John W. McComb was in charge of this department and prepared a large amount of valuable material. He was succeeded by Brigadier General A. A. Humphreys, who retained the position throughout the Peninsular Campaign. These officers were assisted by Lieutenants O. G. Wagner, N. Bowen, John M. Wilson, and James H. Wilson, topographical engineers. This number, although the greatest available, was so small that much of the duty of the department devolved upon parties furnished by Professor Botch, superintendent of the Coast Survey, and other gentlemen from civil life. Owing to the entire absence of reliable topographical maps, the labors of this corps were difficult and arduous in the extreme. Notwithstanding the energy and ability displayed by General Humphreys, Lieutenant Colonel McComb, and their subordinates, who frequently obtained the necessary information under fire, the movements of the army were sometimes unavoidably delayed by the difficulty of obtaining knowledge of the country in advance. The result of their labors was the preparation of an excellent series of maps, which were invaluable to the armies afterwards traversing the same ground. During the campaign, it was impossible to draw a distinct line of demarcation between the duties of the two corps of engineers, so that the labors of reconnaissances of roads, of lines of entrenchments, of fields for battle, and of the position of the enemy, as well as the construction of siege and defensive works, were habitually performed by details from either corps, as the convenience of the service demanded. I desire to express my high appreciation of the skill, gallantry, and devotion displayed by the officers of both Corps of Engineers during the most trying circumstances. During the Maryland campaign, I united the two corps under Captain J.C. Duane, U.S. Engineers, and found great advantages from the arrangement. The permanent union of the two corps since made was no doubt a wise measure. Surgeon Charles S. Tripler and Surgeon Jonathan Letterman in turn performed the duties of medical director of the Army of the Potomac, the former from August 12, 1861, until July 1, 1862, and the latter after that date. The difficulties to be overcome in organizing and making effective the medical department were very great, arising principally from the inexperience of the regimental medical officers, many of whom were physicians taken suddenly from civil life, who, according to Surgeon Tripler, had to be instructed in their duties from the very alphabet and from the ignorance of the line officers as to their relations with the medical officers, which gave rise to confusion and conflict of authority. Boards of examination were instituted, by which many ignorant officers were removed, and by the successive exertions of surgeons Tripler and Letterman, the medical corps was brought to a very high degree of efficiency. With regard to the sanitary condition of the army while on the Potomac, Dr. Tripler said that the records showed a constantly increasing immunity from disease. In October and November 1861, with an army averaging 130,000 men, 
we had 7,932 cases of fever of all sorts. Of these, about 1,000 were reported as cases of typhoid fever. I know that errors of diagnosis were frequently committed, and therefore this must be considered as the limit of typhoid cases. If any army in the world can show such a record as this, I do not know when or where it was assembled. From September 1861 to February 1862, while the army was increasing, the number of sick decreased from 7% to 6.18%. Of these, the men sick in the regimental and general hospitals were less than one-half. The remainder were slight cases, under treatment in quarters. During this time, so far as rumor was concerned, the army was being decimated by disease every month. Of the sanitary condition of the army during the Peninsular Campaign, up to its arrival at Harrison's Landing, Dr. Tripler says, During this campaign the army was favored with excellent health. No epidemic disease appeared. Those scourges of modern armies, dysentery, typhus, cholera, were almost unknown. We had some typhoid fever and more malarial fevers, but even these never prevailed to such an extent as to create any alarm. The sick reports were sometimes larger than we cared to have them, but the great majority of the cases reported were such as did not threaten life or permanent disability. I regret that I have not before me the retained copies of the monthly reports, so that I might give accurate statistics. I have endeavored to recover them, but have been unsuccessful. My recollection is that the whole sick report never exceeded 8% of the force, and this including all sorts of cases, the trivial as well as the severe. The Army of the Potomac must be conceded to have been the most healthy army in the service of the United States. The service, labors, and privation of the troops during the seven days' battles had, of course, a great effect on the health of the army after it reached Harrison's Landing, increasing the number of sick to about 20% of the whole force. The nature of the military operations had also unavoidably placed the medical department in a very unsatisfactory condition. Supplies had been almost entirely exhausted or necessarily abandoned. Hospital tents abandoned or destroyed, and the medical officers were deficient in numbers and broken down by fatigue. All the remarkable energy and ability of Surgeon Letterman were required to restore the efficiency of his department. But before we left Harrison's Landing, he had succeeded in fitting it out thoroughly with the supplies it required, and the health of the army was vastly improved by the sanitary measures which were enforced at his suggestion. The great haste with which the army was removed from the peninsula made it necessary to leave at Fort Monroe, to be forwarded afterwards, nearly all the baggage and transportation, including medical stores and ambulances, all the vessels being required to transport the troops themselves and their ammunition. When the Army of the Potomac returned to Washington, after General Pope's campaign, and the medical department came once more under Surgeon Letterman's control, he found it in a deplorable condition. The officers were worn out by the labors they had performed, and the few supplies that had been brought from the peninsula had been exhausted or abandoned, so that the work of reorganization and resupplying had to be again performed, and this while the enemy was moving rapidly and almost in the face of the enemy. That it was successfully accomplished is shown by the care and attention which the wounded received after the battles of South Mountain and Antietam. Among the improvements introduced into his department by Surgeon Letterman, the principal are the organization of an ambulance corps, the system of field hospitals, and the method of supplying by brigades, all of which were instituted during the Maryland campaign, and found so efficient 
that they remained unchanged until the close of the war, and were to a great extent adopted by the other armies of the United States. On assuming command of the troops in and around Washington, I appointed Captain S. Van Vliet, Assistant Quartermaster, afterwards Brigadier General, Chief Quartermaster to my command, and gave him the necessary instructions for organizing his department and collecting the supplies requisite for the large army then called for. The disaster at Manassas had but recently occurred, and the army was quite destitute of quartermaster's stores. General Van Vliet, with great energy and zeal, set himself about the task of furnishing the supplies immediately necessary, and preparing to obtain the still larger amounts which would be required by the new troops which were moving in large numbers towards the capital. The principal depot for supplies in the city of Washington was under charge of Colonel D. H. Rucker, assistant quartermaster, who ably performed his duties. Lieutenant Colonel R. Ingalls, assistant quartermaster, was placed in charge of the department on the south side of the Potomac. I directed a large depot for transportation to be established at Perryville, on the left bank of the Susquehanna, a point equally accessible by rail and water. Captain C. G. Sautel, assistant quartermaster, was detailed to organize the camp, and performed his duties to my entire satisfaction. Captain J. J. Dana, assistant quartermaster, had immediate charge of the transportation in and about Washington, as well as of the large number of horses purchased for the use of the artillery and cavalry. The principal difficulties which General Van Vliet had to encounter arose from the inexperience of the majority of the officers of his department in the new regiments and brigades. The necessity of attending personally to minor details rendered his duties arduous and harassing in the extreme. All obstacles, however, were surmounted by the untiring industry of the chief quartermaster and his immediate subordinates, and when the army was prepared to move, the organization of the department was found to be admirable. When it was determined to move the army to the peninsula, the duties of providing water transportation were devolved by the Secretary of War upon his assistant, the Honorable John Tucker. The vessels were ordered to Alexandria, and Lieutenant Colonel Ingalls was placed in immediate charge of the embarkation of the troops, transportation, and material of every description. Operations of this nature, on so extensive a scale, had no parallel in the history of our country. The arrangements of Lieutenant Colonel Ingalls were perfected with remarkable skill and energy, and the army and its material were embarked and transported to Fortress Monroe in a very short space of time and entirely without loss. During the operations on the peninsula, until the arrival of troops at Harrison's Landing, General Van Vliet retained the position of chief quartermaster and maintained the thorough organization and efficiency of his department. The principal depots of supplies were under the immediate charge of Lieutenant Colonels Ingalls and Sautel. On the 10th of July, 1862, General Van Vliet, having requested to be relieved from duty with the Army of the Potomac, I appointed Lieutenant Colonel Ingalls Chief Quartermaster, and he continued to discharge the duties of that office during the remainder of the Peninsular and the Maryland campaigns in a manner which fully sustained the high reputation he had previously acquired. The immense amount of labor accomplished, often under the most difficult circumstances, the admirable system under which the duties of the department were performed, and the entire success which attended the efforts to supply so large an army, reflect the highest credit upon the officers upon whom these onerous duties devolved. On the 1st of August, 1861, Colonel H.F. Clark, Commissary of Subsistence, joined my staff, 
and at once entered upon his duties as chief commissary of the Army of the Potomac. In order to realize the responsibilities pertaining to this office, as well as to form a proper estimate of the vast amount of labor which must necessarily devolve upon its occupant, it is only necessary to consider the unprepared state of the country to engage in a war of such magnitude, and the lack of practical knowledge on the part of the officers with reference to supplying and subsisting a large and at that time unorganized army. Yet, notwithstanding the existence of these great obstacles, the manner in which the duties of the commissary department were discharged was such as to merit and call forth the combination of the entire army. During the stay of the Army of the Potomac in the vicinity of Washington, prior to the Peninsular Campaign, its substance was drawn chiefly from the depots which had been established by the commissary department at Washington, Alexandria, Forts Corcoran, and Runyon. In the important task of designating and establishing depots of supplies, Colonel Clark was ably seconded by his assistants, Colonel Amos Beckwith, C.S. USA, Lieutenant Colonel George Bell, C.S. USA, Lieutenant Colonel A.P. Porter, C.S. USA, Captain Thomas Wilson, C.S. USA, Captain Brownell Granger, C.S. U.S. Volunteers, Captain W.H. Bell, C.S. USA, Captain J.H. Woodward, C.S. U.S. Volunteers, and Captain W.R. Murphy, C.S. U.S. Volunteers. A full knowledge of the highly creditable manner in which each and all of the above-mentioned officers discharged their duties was given in the detailed report of Colonel Clark. The remarks and suggestions contained in his report afford valuable rules for the future guidance of the subsistence department in supplying armies in the field. The success of the subsistence department of the Army of the Potomac was in a great measure attributable to the fact that the subsistence department at Washington made ample provision for sending supplies to the peninsula, and that it always exercised the most intelligent foresight. It moreover gave its advice and countenance to the officers charged with its duties and reputation in the field and those officers, I am happy to say, worked with it and together in perfect harmony for the public good. During the entire period that I was in command of the Army of the Potomac, there was no instance within my knowledge where the troops were without their rations from any fault of the officers of this department. I am quite within bounds when I say that no one could have performed his vitally important duties more satisfactorily than did General Clark. He never caused me the slightest anxiety, and I soon learned that he would always carry out my wishes, were it in the power of man to do so. A stranger to all petty intrigue, a brave and able officer, a modest man intent only upon the proper performance of his duty, he has never received the reward and appreciation his invaluable services merited. He held the post of Chief Commissary of the Army of the Potomac until the close of the war, discharging his duty to the entire satisfaction of its successive commanders." Yet he was overslawed in favor of an inferior who never held a position of great importance, and whose only claim was the personal friendship of the president who committed the injustice. As I write, September 1882, he has just received the grade of colonel in the ordinary course of promotion, and will ere long be retired with that grade, his only reward having been the empty brevet of Major General. The Ordnance Department that very important branch of the service, was placed under the charge of Captain C.P. Kingsbury, Ordnance Corps, Colonel and aide-de-camp. 
great difficulty existed in the proper organization of the department for the want of a sufficient number of suitable officers to perform the duties at the various headquarters and depots of supply. But far greater obstacles had to be surmounted from the fact that the supply of small arms was totally inadequate to the demands of a large army, and a vast proportion of those furnished were of such inferior quality as to be unsatisfactory to the troops and condemned by their officers. The supply of artillery was more abundant, but of great variety. Rifled ordnance was just coming into use for the first time in this country, and the description of gun and kind of projectile which would prove most effective, and should therefore be adopted, was a mere matter of theory. To obviate these difficulties, large quantities of small arms of foreign manufacture were contracted for, private enterprise in the construction of arms and ammunition was encouraged, and by the time the army was ordered to move to the peninsula, the amount of ordnance and ordnance stores was ample. But it was not until the close of 1861, too late for active operations, that the infantry were reasonably well provided with serviceable arms, and even after that the calibers were too numerous, and many arms really unfit for service. The artillery material, likewise, arrived in insufficient quantities until the early part of 1862, I mention these facts not in any way reflecting upon the ordnance department, which accomplished all that was in the power of men to do, but as showing the actual difficulties of the situation. Much also had been done to bring the quality, both of arms and ammunition, up to the proper standard. Boards of officers were in session continually during the autumn and winter of 1861 to test the relative merits of new arms and projectiles. The reports of these boards, confirmed by subsequent experience in the field, have done much to establish the respective claims of different inventors and manufacturers. During the campaigns of the Peninsula and Maryland, the officers connected with the department were zealous and energetic, and kept the troops well supplied, notwithstanding the perplexing and arduous nature of their duties. One great source of perplexity was the fact that it had been necessary to issue arms of all varieties and calibers giving an equal diversity in the kinds of ammunition required. Untiring watchfulness was therefore incumbent upon the officers in charge to prevent confusion and improper distribution of cartridges. Colonel Kingsbury discharged the duties of his office with great efficiency until July 1862, when his health required that he should be relieved. First Lieutenant Thomas G. Baylor, Ordnance Corps, succeeded him, and performed his duty during the remainder of the Peninsular and Maryland campaigns with marked ability and success. Immediately after I was placed in command of the Division of the Potomac, I appointed Colonel Andrew Porter, 16th Regiment Infantry, Provost Marshal of Washington. All the available regular infantry, a battery, and a squadron of cavalry were placed under his command, and by his energetic action he soon corrected the serious evils which existed and restored order in the city. When the army was about to take the field, General Porter was appointed Provost Marshal General of the Army of the Potomac, and held that most important position until the end of the Peninsular Campaign, when sickness, contracted in the entiring discharge of his duties, compelled him to ask to be relieved from the position he had so ably and energetically filled. The Provost Marshal General's department had been the charge of a class of duties which had not before, in our service, been defined and grouped under the management of a special department. The following subjects indicate the sphere of this department. Suppression of marauding and depredations, and of all brawls and disturbances. Preservation of good order, 
and suppression of disturbances beyond the limits of the camps. Prevention of straggling on the march. Suppression of gambling houses, drinking houses or bar rooms, and brothels. Regulation of hotels, taverns, markets, and places of public amusement. Searches, seizures, and arrests. Execution of sentences of general courts martial involving imprisonment or capital punishment. Enforcement of orders prohibiting the sale of intoxicating liquors, whether by tradesmen or sutlers, and of orders respecting passes. Deserters from the enemy. Prisoners of war taken from the enemy. Countersigning safeguards. Passes to citizens within the lines and for purposes of trade. Complaints of citizens as to the conduct of the soldiers. General Porter was assisted by the following named officers. Major W.H. Wood, 17th U.S. Infantry. Captain James McMillan, Acting Assistant Adjutant General, 2nd U.S. Infantry. Captain W.T. Gentry, 17th U.S. Infantry. Captain J.W. Forsyth, 18th U.S. Infantry. Lieutenant J.W. Jones, 12th U.S. Infantry. Lieutenant C.F. Trowbridge, 16th U.S. Infantry. And Lieutenant C.D. Mahaffey, 1st U.S. Infantry. The Provost Guard was composed of the 2nd U.S. Infantry, Major Pleasanton, and a battalion of the 8th and 17th U.S. Infantry, Major Willard. After General Porter was relieved, Major Wood was in charge of this department until after the Battle of Antietam, when Brigadier General Patrick was appointed Provost Marshal General. When the Army took the field, for the purpose of securing order and regularity in the camp of headquarters and facilitating its movements, the office of Commandant of General Headquarters was created and assigned to Major G. O. Haller, 7th U.S. Infantry. Six companies of infantry were placed under his orders for guard and police duty. From August 1861, the position of Judge Advocate was held by Colonel Thomas T. Gant, aide-de-camp, until compelled by ill health to retire at Harrison's Landing in August 1862. His reviews of the decisions of courts-martial during this period were of great utility in correcting the practice in military courts, diffusing true notions of discipline and subordination, and setting before the Army a high standard of soldierly honor. Upon the retirement of Colonel Gant, the duties of Judge Advocate were ably performed by Colonel Thomas M. Key, aide-de-camp. The method of conveying intelligence and orders invented and introduced into the service by Major Albert J. Meyer, signal officer, U.S. Army, was first practically tested in large operations during the organization of the Army of the Potomac. Under the direction of Major Meyer, a signal corps was formed by detailing officers and men from the different regiments of volunteers and instructing them in the use of the flags by day and torches by night. The chief signal officer was indefatigable in his exertions to render his corps effective, and it soon became available for service in every division of the Army. In addition to the flags and torches, Major Meyer introduced a portable insulated telegraph wire, which could be readily laid from point to point, and which could be used under the same general system. In front of Washington, and on the lower Potomac, at any point within our lines not reached by the military telegraph, the great usefulness of this system of signals was made manifest. But it was not until after the arrival of the army upon the peninsula, and during the siege and battles of that and the Maryland campaigns, that the great benefits to be derived from it on the field and under fire were fully appreciated. There was scarcely any action or skirmish in which the Signal Corps did not render important services. Often under heavy fire of artillery, 
and not unfrequently while exposed to musketry, the officers and men of this corps gave information of the movements of the enemy, and transmitted directions for the evolutions of our own troops. The weak point in the Signal Corps, as then constituted, was that its officers were not trained soldiers, and therefore their judgment could not always be relied upon. The telegraphic operations of the Army of the Potomac were superintended by Major Thomas J. Eckert, and under the immediate direction of Mr. Caldwell, who was with a corps of operators attached to my headquarters during the entire campaigns upon the peninsula and in Maryland. The services of this corps were arduous and efficient. Under the admirable arrangements of Major Eckert, they were constantly provided with all the material for constructing new lines, which were rapidly established whenever the Army changed position, and it was not unfrequently the case that the operatives worked under fire from the enemy's guns, yet they invariably performed all the duties required of them with great alacrity and cheerfulness, and it was seldom that I was without the means of direct telegraphic communication with the War Department and with the Corps Commanders. From the organization of the Army of the Potomac up to November 1, 1862, including the Peninsular and Maryland campaigns, upwards of 1,200 miles of military telegraph line had been constructed in connection with the operations of the Army, and the number of operatives and builders employed was about 200. To Professor Lowe, the intelligent and enterprising aeronaut, who had the management of the balloons, I was indebted for information obtained during his ascensions. In a clear atmosphere, and in a country not too much obstructed by woods, balloon reconnaissances made by intelligent officers are often of considerable value. I more than once took occasion to recommend the members of my staff, both general and personal, for promotion and reward. I once more record their names in the history of the Army of the Potomac as gallant soldiers, to whom their country owes a debt of gratitude still unpaid for the courage, ability, and untiring zeal they displayed during the eventful campaigns in which they bore so prominent a part. End of chapter 7